Welcome everyone, you are listening to the Bleeding Big Blue Podcast, Alex Skyvers Brothers back again, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find our podcast right here on YouTube, also on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and Google Play, follow our social media pages at Bleeding Big Blue Podcast, also recommend this podcast to fans who don't know our podcast, great Giants discussions, great Giants content, really fun. So today we had on Dan Duggan, Giants beat reporter for The Athletic, obviously news broke out yesterday that DeAndre Baker was involved in a robbery with Seahawks cornerback Quentin Dunbar. That was included in today's discussion as well. I will give you guys my full take on the situation after I play the interview. I will be live streaming tonight on my PS4, the my Madden franchise of my rebuilding Cincinnati Bengals. Even though I'm a Giants fan, I chose to do the Bengals. Interesting team. I'll send out a graphic of all the moves that I made previous so you get the hang of what my franchise will look like. Without further ado, let's get to the discussion with Dan Duggan of The Athletic. Okay, so now we are with Dan Duggan, Giants reporter for The Athletic. Dan, how's everything going? It's going pretty well. How about you? I'm doing good, too. Okay, so first off, we saw news yesterday about DeAndre Baker last night uh, with him and Quentin Dunbar robbing a party, then setting up getaway cars. What is your take on this, and are you surprised with Baker's behavior? Uh, well, I'm certainly surprised. I mean, it's a pretty wild charge. I don't really see a millionaire professional athletes getting charged on robbery too often. So, yeah, I mean, certainly um, surprised. Um, you know, I think obviously it's very early. I always have to say that. I mean, everything's alleged at this point. Uh, you know, they haven't even been arrested yet. So have to let things play out a bit. But certainly from what we read on Thursday night in that affidavit, it doesn't look good. Um, you know, certainly if those charges uh, are accurate and are proven, then he's, he's in a lot of trouble beyond, you know, his football career. So, um, you know, the, the first reaction is just like everybody else, you're pretty much shocked. And then you certainly, uh, as you read it more, it's like, wow, this is, this is pretty bad stuff. Again, you know, obviously if, if true. Um, and, you know, with Baker, I mean, listen, again, I'm surprised anyone who's involved in something this serious, but he certainly, you know, isn't the last guy you'd expect. Put it that way. You know, he, he's, he's always come across as, uh, you know, a little rough around the edges. I mean, there's plenty of question marks about him. Uh, in the pre-draft process, and then he really didn't do very much to distinguish himself on or off the field in his rookie year. Uh, you know, there are plenty of examples of just not hustling and, and not really being kind of professional as far as his commitment to learn the playbook and just, you know, day in and day out in the meeting rooms. Um, so, yeah, you don't necessarily think that's going to lead to something as drastic as this. Um, but he was a guy that, you know, he, I'm sure that uh, if they're going to – the Giants front office is going to get a call with someone being in trouble – um, he would have been higher on the list than some other guys. You know, I, I think he just definitely had, uh, like I said, a little bit rougher on the edges. So uh, it's it's surprising the the level of, of this. Um, but he's definitely a guy who who had some some kind of red flags. Uh, you know, dating back to his time at Georgia. Now I have my prediction of what the, I think the Giants will do regarding the corner position. They've done unexpected things before, so I'm not so sure on that prediction, but. They have a lot of young cornerbacks besides uh, DeAndre Baker. If, let's say they cut him, and even if they don't, he's probably going to get suspended if these charges are proven. Should they sign a veteran corner, or should they stick to somebody like Sam Beal or Corey Ballantyne on the outside? I mean, I think, uh, you know, let's just assume that he's not playing. He's on the team, you know, for, whatever, for one reason or another, where it's suspension or, you know, he's, he's in deeper trouble legally. Let's just say he's not on the roster um, this fall. My first inclination is they probably try to roll with, you know, Beal and Valentine and Darnay Holmes, all these, they just drafted all these young corners in the last two years. 
Uh, I think, you know, it probably makes sense to just kind of throw them into the fire and see what you got. I mean, I know people will, you know, have been scanning what frames are available. I mean, listen, this happened in January or February, it might change things drastically. It might change who you target in the first wave of free agency, might change who you target in the draft. Um, but at this point, it's kind of slim pickings out there. I know a guy like Logan Ryan's out there, and he'd be a great fit, but he still is going to look for some decent money. He's more of a slot guy at this point in his career, so um, he's a guy that maybe didn't sign James Bradbury would have made sense, but I don't know if you're going to go and spend big money on Bradbury and then also spend a decent chunk of change on Logan Ryan unless his asking price uh, is way down. You know, I, I think he'll still uh, cash in a bit. So then you look at other guys that are out there, it's a lot of guys that just are they going to be significant upgrades? Is it worth it to bring a you know a veteran stopgap into a team that you know really isn't going to be a serious contender this year? Or is it better to just kind of roll with the young guys and you know hopefully one of them emerges? And if they don't, you know going into the next offseason, well that's a huge priority. We have to either um, you know make it a big priority in the draft or free agency. Um, so I, I think that's the way I would lean. But you know obviously it's, it's very early. You don't know what the price tag might be on a, a veteran out there. But I, I don't see them. Uh, saying, oh man, we got to go and spend eight million dollars on Logan Ryan, but you know, it certainly could be wrong. Now it's kind of a two and one here. Obviously, unless the Giants actually let this play out to the end of the month and possibly past June, whatever happens, they're not going to be. If they decide to cut him, they're not going to cut him post June first, even though it saves them more money than it would cutting him right now. Should they cut him, and would you? Because I think he has a five million dollar cap hit, but also. Uh, you know, would you keep him on the roster just for the sake of developing him or just leave that off to the side and put legal matters first? Uh, well, thankfully, I don't have to make that decision, so I'll try to put myself more in the Giants' shoes. Um, you know, I think that, again, we don't know, you know, his side of the story. You know, we don't, you know, his, his lawyers haven't gotten their hands on to, to, to say, you know, from his perspective what went down. But if any of this is true, I cannot see John Mara being okay with this guy being in their locker room. I mean, again... If any of it's true, he's definitely going to face uh, some league discipline, certainly could face some serious legal discipline. But let's say, you know, things blow over and he pleads out or whatever. But if, if this is still true to some extent, I cannot see, uh, you know, the Giants wanting him as part of their team. Now, the financial part gets dicey too because, you know, you're looking at it from like a cap perspective and, and that makes sense. And, you know, if you're going to cut a guy, June 1, post June 1, all that stuff. Their hands are going to be a little bit tied, though, and I haven't dove too deeply into this yet, to be honest, because it only happened about 12 hours ago. But the way you kind of get money back in these types of situations, you have to let the process play out a little bit. If they just cut him today, I don't think they'd have any recourse to go get any, you know, signing bonus recouped or uh, any of that. I think it would just be treated like you're saying with the cap it would be. I think they'd be more protected if they let the process play out, let the league discipline him, let the legal situation play out. And it could, you know, you hear about, you know, big cases from the past, whether it be like Michael Vick or even Aaron Hernandez. I mean, there was, there was big hangups about, you know, recouping signing bonus money. It's a huge process, but I think you have to let the steps play out. So I would be surprised if they just come out today and say, we're cutting down your Baker really beyond any morality reason, but just uh, logistically and financially, I think it, they kind of have to let the process unfold a bit, even if that may be very difficult for John Mayer to stomach. And listen, if they do cut him today, It'll be because they just they can't stomach Kevin on the roster. Now, a lot of Giant fans are going after Dave Gettleman for trading three picks to get this guy 30th overall in 2019. Uh, obviously, you said there's red flags before the draft. He slept through player meetings, but also was one of the top two corners 
in the draft. Now, during the season, on one of the uh, Jets' drives, they I think it was Jamison Crowder was coming down the field. He made a catch on a crossing route. DeAndre Baker uh, wasn't hustling enough, and I think Pat Shermer called him out on that during practice. And also, he would he's known to taunt players after he gets beat, but the QB misses the throw. And he actually got an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty against the Vikings for doing such. Uh, should the Giants blame Gettleman? F- excuse me. Should Giant fans blame Dave Gettleman for taking a chance on someone who has bad character issues and trying to rebuild a culture? I mean, it's a little bit nuanced. I will say, you know, there were there were character red flags in the pre-draft process, but nothing that suggested that this was possible. You know, you have to definitely separate the two. That, uh, you know, not really taking your combine training that seriously and having a really bad performance at the combine or not projecting yourself well in interviews with NFL teams. You know, those are things that probably explain why a guy who had, you know, a pretty good college career was available to, to be taken with the 30th pick, but no one could have said, oh, yeah, we saw this coming. This, so so that, that's a different uh, kind of ball of wax. But as far as gentlemen, just on the, the football evaluations, I mean, listen, those pre-draft interviews and all the scouting and all the fact-finding they do, you talk to, you know, you've heard Joe Judge talk about how deep he goes into, um, you know, his Rolodex to find out everything he can about these prospects. Certainly something was amiss, or the, or the Giants were willing to, to stomach more risk than other teams were um, because, you know, Baker was available there, the 30th pick. Uh, and, and gentlemen certainly takes some blame for that. I mean, listen, it's, it's a bottom-line business. If DeAndre Baker never plays again for the Giants because of some off-field thing, you don't give Dave Gettleman a pass because, again, like, you drafted this guy. So um, certainly it's, it's, you know, it's on Dave Gettleman's resume. I, like I said, you have to separate – the, the crime here that may have been committed versus just the football stuff, but the football stuff was there. And, and you know, as you mentioned, his rookie year, um, there was a lot of incidents there where, uh, you know, the Jets, the, the playing the Jets game you highlighted uh, was, was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. But he had had a lot of stuff that was that was building up, and they tried to stick with him because he was a first round pick, and they didn't have a lot of other great options. Uh, but it was it was not a good good rookie year for him on or off the field, and and it's just really. Uh, you know, disappointing to see. Obviously, I think a lot of people thought, "Oh, a new coaching staff, like this will this will change him." And you know, beyond just the, the you know the charges he's facing, I reported that he wasn't even participating in the voluntary uh, mini camp meetings this week. That's not a good look. I mean, you got a new coaching staff. I mean, Joe Judge has made it pretty clear that he's going to be a pretty strict guy to not be trying to make the best possible impression on him. Uh, that's a bad look from a football perspective. So. Uh, none, none of this looks good for really anybody, you know, I mean, again, with Gettleman, um, he certainly has to, to own the fact that he traded up for a guy who had some character issues and then, you know, it seems like the worst of those character issues have come to the surface after only a year or two. Moving on to a much different subject, but you could also kind of relate it in a way. I interviewed uh, former Giants Super Bowl champ Rich Sober a week or two ago. He still has contact with all his lineman buddies, Sean O'Hara, David Deal, you name it. Is the chemistry between them keeps going every day. They still have group chat. Uh, is that what this team has been missing the last couple of years, especially the offensive line and the defense? It's hard to say. I mean, that's always sort of the thing that gets highlighted when people look back on what worked out. But uh, I think that sort of short changes the talent. Because, I mean, that line they had that won the Super Bowl, yeah, it wasn't a bunch of, you know, former first-round picks. Um, but, you know, because I feel like you hear every offseason that, Oh, this is the year that the Giants have great chemistry. A couple of years ago, there was a lot made of the fact that Bobby Hart and Eric Flowers were training at the facility, which obviously meant nothing. And then uh, the year after that, it was you know, bringing Nate Solder. He was really this unifying force. And Patrick Mohamed was a solid veteran. That obviously meant nothing. I think it's really, you know, I'm a big 
uh, Jimmy's and Joe's over the X's and O's type of guy. And I think it's, you got to have talent. And, you, and so if Andrew Thomas is a really good player and he's not a, you know, not a complete jerk, that's going to be better than having a really good guy in that room. I mean, and I say that about Thomas, I, everything I've heard, he's, you know, fine. I, no, no characteristics at all. I'm just saying that talent kind of ruled today in the NFL. You can't have guys, you know, doing what DeAndre Baker's alleged, but you don't need to have 53 choir boys either. So I think if, if the talent level is higher, um, I think that'll go a long way. And then the fact that, yes, from that, you hope you have some chemistry, and then also you hope that guys can grow together. You have a Will Hernandez and Andrew Thomas, Matt Hurt playing together for 10 years, then yes, obviously you would think that would benefit them down the road. But I think the biggest thing this offensive line is really lacking is talent, and that's where, you again, you would hope a guy like Thomas can sort of start to uh, turn the tide there from, from this kind of wasteland they've been in since that, that group you talked about. What are some of the things that you've and the beat have learned over the last couple of days? Because I know there's been a lot of Zoom calls with the media. There's been, I think it was Dalvin Tomlinson, Jones, Barkley, also Joe Judge. What are, what are some of the things that you guys have learned? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, listen, with Judge, every time he talks, you can tell that this is a guy who, forget the fact that he's 38 years old and has never been a head coach. You can tell that he is very organized, very on point. Uh, he really articulates his message very clearly. And he does that with us, which, you know, whatever that's worth. But you can tell he does it with the players, too. Like, they're kind of, you know, marching in step to the, the sort of culture he's trying to build. And, um, you know, it seems, you know, listen, it's it's the honeymoon period. He just got hired. They haven't lost any games. They haven't had a practice yet. So, of course, the players are going to, um, you know, give him a chance. And like what they're hearing so far. But, um, you know, you're talking about three of their leaders and, and sort of, quote, unquote, good guys. So, they're obviously going to be, you know, bought in. So, yeah, I mean, I think they sounded optimistic. You know, no one's making excuses about the whole virtual aspect of this offseason. I think it's going to be a big problem because, again, you do have a first-time head coach. You do have new systems. You have a lot of young players. It's hard for me to imagine that not being a pretty big handicap this season. But they're not leaning into that and using that as a crutch. And that's, you know, that's definitely how Judge is wired. He's not looking for any excuses. But to, to the players' credit, especially Jones, who a lot of people were asking him questions about that, he isn't saying, oh, yeah, this is going to be such a, a tough year. He's saying, no, you know, i got to learn it just like everybody else does, and, and uh, we'll go from there. Andrew Thomas was drafted fourth overall. Now, we have not seen anyone on the field because it's all been closed down. Zoom calls is just what we've been having right now. Depending on player development, and it also seems that some t- most tackles struggle their rookie year, whether it be left tackle or right tackle, where do you think he should start depending on player development? Yeah, I could go either way with this. I personally lean towards right tackle for his rookie year. I mean, you can just as easily make a case for left tackle. The way I look at it is, like you said, rookies tend to struggle. Um, you know, Nate Solder obviously struggled as a veteran last year, so there's no, there's no saying that he'll be better than Thomas. But I think it might make the transition a little easier for Thomas. Um, put him on the right side. You put him next to Kevin Zeitler, who's a very solid veteran. Whereas on the left side, you got Will Hernandez, who's a young player in his own right. Um, you know, I don't think he's a guy who's going to be like great guidance for Thomas because he's still figuring it out. So I think you balance sort of the experience levels a little bit. If you have Solder and Hernandez playing together for a third straight season, like back to your point about the, the continuity, you would think at some point that would start to manifest until guys are, you know, working together as much as they have. And again, I like the idea of Thomas next to a solid veteran like Zeitler. But if Thomas is just, you know, clearly better than Solder when they do get on the field, whenever that is. Um, I mean, I have no problem with starting the left tackle. I think the good news with him is he played both at Georgia. It's been a couple of years since he played right tackle, but it's not a situation where he's never done it. So, I mean, you'll be able to 
um, you know, regain that, that form pretty quickly, you would assume. And I do think a long-term future for Thomas is, is definitely left tackle. So, again, if they think that's just their best interest for this year and the future, hey, put him left tackle and don't, and don't look back. But um, plenty of guys have started on the right side and moved to left tackle. And I just think with the situation they have and, um, you know, having the Daniel Jones' blind side protector being so important, I think I might take my chances with Solder, um, you know, returning to at least, you know, kind of average form rather than putting that on Thomas as a rookie. So let him get his feet wet at right tackle, and you hope by 2021 you know, he's ready to play left tackle for the next decade. Now, Judge has expressed interest in cross-training Nick Gates and Shane Lemieux from guard and center and back and forth. Should they re-sign John Halapio once he's back and true to form again from the torn Achilles, or should they just stick to Spencer Pulley at center? Both really didn't do well at center last season yeah well i mean center is certainly a question mark and, and not when they really address this offseason you know for agency they kind of kicked the tires in some of the lower level guys and didn't didn't get any of them and draft didn't take a true center i mean again you, as you mentioned lemieux gonna get some work there but he's never played center in a game so um, that would be a pretty pretty significant change for a guy who's going to be coming as a fifth round rookie to start at a position he's never played and it's not like switching from left guard to right guard to the center it's a pretty significant change from off the line. And so I think people who are kind of really excited about the, the possibility of Lemieux starting at center probably could pump the brakes. And you also add in the fact that he's missing valuable practice time, as, as everyone is, but he's, he'd be on the field right now if they wanted to start center and, and working with Daniel Jones and working with uh, Mark Colombo and, and you know, working on that form um, with the Giants. Instead, he's you know stuck doing it with a trainer or something like that. So uh, I think that's a tall task. I think mean, Gates, another guy who's never played center, He's been in the league, so maybe the, the transition will be a little smoother. But, again, I think it's really going to be tough to ask a young guy to, to start at a new position that he's never played before, which is a complex one like center, with a limited offseason. So I think the options really do come down to Pulley. And then Jalapio, who uh, Gettleman keeps referring to, like, we'll check back on him in June, we'll check back on him in June. So I think that's going to be a big sort of benchmark in his recovery from the torn Achilles he suffered in the season finale last year. So, but it certainly seems like they're going to bring him back. I mean, I'm sure it'll be a minimum one-year deal, no guaranteed money. And if he comes in and he's just not in shape or fully beats him out, then they would cut him. But, they, you know, he is an own commodity. started, I think it was 15 games last year. They like him. I mean, his play might not have been, uh, you know, up to, up to snuff last year, but they like him. So I think they'd be comfortable with him or Pulley going into the year. But just because they're comfortable with that doesn't mean, you know, fans should be fat. I think that was a weak spot last year. And to not make any upgrade there is, is certainly – uh, concerning, if you ask me. Now, this is another hot topic among Giant fans, at least lately before the DeAndre Baker thing. Nate Solder gave up 11 sacks and 57 pressures from the left side while Jones was quarterback. Also, Eli as well. The analytics say that he's average and it was often Jones' fault for fumbling the football and that Solder is serviceable at left tackle next year and that pass block win rate, he had the same as Tyron Smith at the Cowboys. Now, another side of the Giants fans say, including myself, that Solder gave up the sacks at some of the worst times possible. You look at the Cowboys game, you also look at the Eagles game on Monday night. He gave up a sack and then failed a flea flicker and the Giants didn't score in the second half and they ended up losing that game due to no halftime adjustment. But also, they don't encounter uh, the analytics meaning Game sensitivity and film watching. When considering the Solder and the Jones topic, what side do you really fall on? How do you really judge Solder and Jones' situation, really? I mean, I think they kind of played off each other and uh, unfortunately made themselves worse because 
Um, yeah, Solder certainly had plenty of breakdowns. I mean, yeah, you know, the analytics, I think, you, you know, there's some value in them, but I, I think you certainly have to factor in the eyeball test or the idea that, you know, Solder um, was mediocre last year. I would, I would think he was a little worse than that. Um, but having a rookie quarterback who maybe didn't always have the, the best internal clock and wasn't always the strongest with the ball in the pocket certainly didn't help. I mean, maybe there's times where Solder would got beat and Eli would have already, have, you know, thrown the ball away or checked it down or turtled up for a sack. And at least you don't have a fumble that's like a really game-changing play. And that's something certainly Jones is going to have to improve in year two, no matter who's protecting him, right side, left side, and veteran rookie. I mean, he has to improve that on his own. But Solder certainly contributed. Um, he wasn't great in 2018, definitely took a, a step back in 2019. Getting older, you wonder, is this something he can reverse? Um, you know, as I said, I think I would stick him in the left tackle, but I don't still have much conviction because, again, if he comes out there in camp, and just does not look as you know athletic and dynamic as Andrew Thomas. Um, I would have no problem with them, you know, going with Thomas on the blind side because that is you know, the most important position on the line. You have to protect the quarterback's blind side, especially a young one like Jones with fumbling issues. So um, they have to find the best man for the job. And, and uh, if it's not Solder, then certainly you know, they got to give Thomas a look there. Now, besides Slayton, Tate, and Sterling Shepard, also Sterling Shepard has injury history, so does Evan Ingram. But on the basis of wide receiver, they didn't draft on number four. You don't really have anybody coming at you behind them. They did sign Benjamin Victor, Austin Mack, and Derek Dillon as undrafted free agents. Now, the Giants could have Slayton as that guy that goes up and gets it in Jason Garrett's offense. We know Joe Judge said that it's going to be a lot like what he ran in Dallas. Do you imagine the Giants elevating one or two of these UDFAs to the actual roster in September? The opportunity is certainly there because, like I said, they really haven't done anything to address the wide receiver position this offseason. Um, didn't sign anybody for agency, as, as, as I recall. I mean, they re-signed guys like Cody Core and Corey Coleman. Uh, you know, Core, I think, will be on the roster, but he's you know basically a special teamer and you know a depth receiver. And Coleman, it's like, hey, they kind of sold this lottery ticket. Let's you know try and catch it in this year because, obviously, last year you got – wiped away with the torn ACL on, on day one of camp, but uh, hard to rely on him. You, you know, he hasn't really done it uh, in his career. Uh, and, no, you know, like I said, no draft picks. So certainly these UDFAs, there's a clear avenue. Um, you know, you got to fight the likes of Damari Scott and David Sills. I mean, it's not like there's um, this really deep depth chart that they're going to have to overcome. And some of these guys were certainly draftable players and, you know, priority for agents. And so there, there's some talent there, played at big-time programs. Um, you know, so definitely I think camp preseason uh, is big for them because, again, if you have, all you have to do is outperform Corey Coleman or David Sills to get, like, the fourth or fifth job, that's not an insurmountable task for these guys. So uh, I definitely think that they're they're going to be in the mix. And I can understand why they signed with the Giants because it's a pretty favorable depth chart. UDFA looking for an opportunity after the top three guys here, it's pretty wide open. Now, a lot of Giants fans still don't have a good feeling about Leonard Williams based on the situation he was brought in. Could have been signed in free agency, also was traded for a 3-5 and a five in the Giants rebuild. He had a lot of pressures, hurries, QB hits last year, but also sacked the QB a halftime. He shared that sack with David Mayo. Do you think coming this year in a, in a Patrick Graham defense that he does have a lot of positive impact, especially when it comes to Dexter Lawrence's development? I mean, I think he's a good player. Like, I, I think anyone who tries to say he's not a good player is, you know, being a little too harsh because they don't like the trade or they don't like Gettleman. Uh, I think just the question with Leonard Williams is, was he worth what they gave up for him in the draft capital when he was going to be a free agent, you know, as you said, 
and was as of right now paying on the franchise tag at sixteen million dollars a year, and that's what Chris Jones makes. And he also got tagged by Kansas City. No one will argue that Leonard Williams is as impactful as Chris Jones, which could be getting paid the same amount, or they've been better off just never going down this Leonard Williams road, signing some other comparable defensive lineman this offseason for say ten or twelve million dollars. You know, having a few extra bucks to bank, and also having that third round pick that you know you could have used on an edge rusher or a center or any any of the guys that were available when. Uh, the Jets were on the clock with that pick, but the Giants, uh, you know, did own once upon a time. I think that's that's the debate. Um, but no, I think once they line up and play, he's a good player, and and he'll help Dalvin Thomason, he'll help Dexter Lawrence, he'll help the entire defense. Um, you know, as you said, the analytics always sort of reflect well on him. But the thing I struggle with that is a lot of times the you know the PFFs and the analytics of the world will say, you know, hurries and and pressures, they're a better indicator of like future sacks. But Williams been in the league for five years, and it's pretty much always been that. He's always been a guy who gets a lot of pressures, gets a lot of hurries, but doesn't get sacked. So I think that's just kind of who he is. He's not some anomaly. I think he's just a guy who's like close but no cigar, and there's certainly value to creating pressure and getting in the pocket. But $16 million for a guy who has a half a sack is tough to swallow. I mean, I know it's not the end-all, be-all for a defensive tackle, but um, that's that's a really low level of production, obviously, in terms of, yeah, I know it's fashionable to say sacks don't matter or whatever, but I mean, there's it's still good if you can get in there and drop the quarterback for an eight-yard loss. That's still good as far as I'm concerned. And so uh, to totally dismiss them as having any value, I think is going too far the other way. So I think with you know, I think with with Williams, it's a debate that has kind of passionate takes on both sides and both sort of uh, skewed too far to the extreme. But I think bottom line is he's a solid, good player, and just probably the Giants have invested too much between the draft capital and the salary. Now, one point we can also make when it comes to sacks and him, obviously half sack last year, shared, shared that with David Mayo. You look at the Jets before he got traded. He didn't get a sack at all. They had a better secondary than the, than the Giants did, and they held up a lot of times and the pressure came down, but sacks were a problem for the Jets last season, and Williams wasn't a, a contributor, and that's what a lot of people say, oh, he didn't get a sack with the Jets. But, you know, the pressures, the hurries, that's also stuff that's also forgotten when it comes to Williams. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, he, he's definitely a, a good player. He's a solid player. Uh, I just think that the notion that um, he's not a game changer, in my opinion. I mean, I, and I think it's definitely cherry-picking and small samples, but, like, the Jets' defense didn't suffer without him, and the Giants' defense, their run defense marginally improved. The pass defense didn't improve. The overall scoring defense didn't improve. The team results didn't improve. So uh, he's certainly not a guy who sways the results. So if you're, I don't know. I just think I'm investing – 16 million dollars in a guy and giving up draft picks to acquire him i want him to be a khalil mack type presence or something like that who really takes over games like williams is a good b-level player but he's just you know the giants have poured a-level resources into him now uh also on the analytical standpoint marcus golden was a fan favorite last year had has the tag on him that after july 22nd if he's not signed he comes back to the team had a 10 sack season last year first linebacker to do that since lawrence taylor and i believe 1990 however analytical giant fans downplayed the 10 sacks because they were either coverage sacks or un or whether he was unblocked and he was not really known to be that game changer he's really more of a number two uh pass rusher how do you view the situation, and do you still believe that Marcus Golden should be brought back to the team because, you know, he boosted the sacks for this team last year in the pass rush? 
Well, I mean, I think he thought he was going to cash in because the whole concept of a prove-it deal is, you know, he's coming off two injuries after he had a double-digit sack season. He figures, I'll take this one-year deal, reunited with Betcher, his old coordinator. I'll show that I'm healthy. I'm sure that I can be productive. And then I'll go cash in. I'll get my big, my big check. Now he went out and he had 10 sacks, and that big check never came for, you know, a multitude of reasons. You know, obviously he touched on them to the extent that He's not viewed as like an A-level pass rusher, so he's not going to get paid like one. Now, I don't know exactly what his asking price was, um, but it certainly is lower now because the market just never uh, you know, met his demands. Now, I, I, I totally agree with the idea that he's a number two. Like, I, I don't, I wouldn't have paid him fifteen million dollars a year or anything like that by any stretch. But I mean, he does have his last two fully healthy season. I think he's got like twenty-two sacks. So I mean, he is a productive guy. Totally agree, though. A lot of his sacks are, are hustle and effort and just his motor. He's not a guy that uh, I don't think opposing coordinators stay up at night thinking, how are we going to block 44? You know, he's just, he's just not a game changing type player. Um, but there's, there's definitely still value to what he does. I mean, still getting the quarterback on the ground 10 times is, is more than anyone else in the Giants could say last year. So I, I think the Giants have played this pretty well. Like they weren't going to invest big money. They really signed Tyler Fackrell to the very similar contract to Golden from a year ago. So that was going to be their new one year prove a guy who's had one year of big production. And, you hope he catches lightning in a bottle when he re- reunites with an old coach. Um, but then with with Golden Sony out there, that you know they they kind of dug into the New England playbook there and had the shrewd move of using that uh, unrestricted free agent tender, which you know never gets used. The only time I know of getting used was Garrett Blount in New England a few years ago. Um, so that was that was a wise move by them because it basically just gives them, like I said, July twenty second is the deadline. If he doesn't sign elsewhere, he's locked into returning to the Giants. At basically the same deal as last year, around $4 million with another million uh, in incentives if he reaches 10 sacks again. So listen, they'll, they'll gladly pay him that extra million if, if he hits 10 sacks again. Um, so they set a price tag. Like, listen, we think you're a quality player, and for 4 or $5 million, we'd love to have you back, but we don't think you're a you know four-year, $40 million player, which I'm sure he thinks he is and wanted to be. So um, they kind of, you know, they just let, let this play out. And I don't think in the bidding war or anything, if some team decides, you know what, we are going to go – sign him to three years, 30 million. They're going to say, you know, best of luck to you, Marcus, but he's a quality player, good guy in the locker room. So if they can get him back at, at a bargain rate, um, they'd be crazy not to. So I think it was a shrewd move to apply that tender. And now I guess we got about two months to wait to see if, if some suitor emerges or he maybe has to just kind of tuck tail and, and come back. Probably won't be real happy about it, but um, this is the worst thing in the world to make $4 million to, to play football. And uh, I think he would, take it as another proven year and, you know, hope that another big year finally gets on the payday uh, next offseason. Now the Giants are an improved team. They did sign Blake Martinez, James Bradbury, a couple other free agents. Rookies are expected to make a jump. They have a very tough schedule, however. How many wins do you see the Giants getting? I see, say, between five and seven for my prediction. Yeah, I definitely think that's the range. I went five. I guess I'm just a little more of a pessimist, but I, I mean, I think it is a tough schedule. Um, you know, I do think it's, there's going to be an impact of having a, a first-time head coach uh, working with a you know staff of guys he knows, but a staff that has never been together, having to learn all new schemes with a lot of new pieces, whether it be draft picks, free agents, young quarterback, and then you add in this you know basically unprecedented offseason. I mean, I would you'd much rather be in like the Chiefs situation, obviously, where they're bringing back like 18 starters or something like that, and a veteran coach and a quarterback who's been in the system for a few years. And those types of teams are obviously going to have a significant advantage, in my opinion, where I think the Giants at the other end of the spectrum, a team that hasn't been very good in recent years, has a lot of moving pieces this offseason. It's going to be very hard for me to see them 
you know, put it all together and have, have a great season. I think it's going to be a little bit of a rough go. Uh, but, I, you know, I think that seven wins isn't out of the question by any stretch. And I think, you know, to, to kind of pust around that four-win mark the last couple of years was three, five, and back to four, uh, I think it would be big for the break out of that and get into the six or seven-win range. I don't think anyone thinks this is like a 10-win, you know, division-contending type team. But I think seven is probably the high end. And, and if they do that, I think you'd feel a ton of optimism going into 2021. That that means probably Judge was up to the task, and Jones was up to the task, and then you've got to fill in a few spots, and maybe you're really ready to contend uh, in a year. Who's the most exciting opponent for you on the Giants' schedule? For me, it'd probably be the Browns, probably also the Steelers, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that Browns game kind of loses a little bit of luster because it's so late. You know, I think that's one that – you know, we're kind of looking forward to it for like two years now, or I guess a year now, uh, ever since Odell landed there. But it would have been really fun if that was like the opener on Monday Night Football. You know, by the time we get to week 15, uh, that might be lacking a, a little bit of juice. But that's that's still, I think, as long as he's healthy, um, that'll be that'll definitely be a fun game. And certainly, uh, yeah, everyone will be tuned in to, to see kind of what he brings. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think, you know, you got a Monday Night game at home against Tom, Tom Brady and the Bucks. Um, that, that should be a pretty good atmosphere. <laughs> I say atmosphere, that's just some fans are in the building. But uh, I mean, anytime you get to play against Brady, um, that's always kind of like appointment viewing. And, and Tampa's going to be a fascinating team with uh, Brady and Gronk and the weapons they already have. So I think that'll be, um, you know, kind of a big time game. It'll be fun to watch, uh, see how that plays out. Now, whether it be late or maybe early in the season, I guess you sound surprised that the Giants Browns game never got primetime action, at least for this year. Yeah, I mean, I put it this way. I think if that game was on the schedule last year, it would have been like week two Monday Night Football. Uh, I think the fact that both teams had bad years uh, last year, that just isn't a lot of sizzle that I don't know if even the Odell revenge game, you know, I don't know what the Monday Night games are, like week two, three, four. But I'm sure there's matchups that are juicier than just trying to, to um, use the Odell hook. So I think that, yeah, that game got, got kind of buried because at the end of the day, it's a, NFC East versus AFC North, so there's really no stakes, and uh, and both teams haven't been very good. <laughs> so I think that it's just it, that's very where it lost its luster as far as prime time. Dan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, absolutely appreciate it. Okay, so that was the Dan Duggan interview from earlier. Obviously, we discussed a lot of topics, including the under bigger one. So I'm going to get my two cents into this. So yesterday it came out that DeAndre Baker and Quentin Dunbar were at a party and something must have went wrong and they pulled guns out on people and robbed them of their watches, 7K and money, and much other properties that those people had. They also lost $70,000 in gambling the night before. Now my question is, you're a millionaire, both of them, both of them, you're a millionaire cornerback in the National Football League. What makes you think that it's not going to go unchecked that you actually did this and also you make millions of dollars so i don't get why you're doing this okay besides that they had getaway cars a bmw mercedes and a lamborghini there's always been character issues with deandre baker uh as we discussed in the interview discussion that before the draft he slept during player meetings and then during the season pat Shermer called him out on his lack of effort Showing in the Jets game when Jamison Crowder was hit on a crossing route and he went much down the field, DeAndre Baker was jogging. And then, 
on some plays, this showed against the Vikings, it was actually a run play. Uh, mistake corrected in the video, I said it was a pass play, it was a run play. Dalvin Cook ran the, ran the football, or it was either Alexander Madison, the backup. It was one of the two. Runs it for a short gain, it wasn't a first down. So DeAndre Baker starts drawing with him, and he gets flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct. I don't think he even made the tackle on that play. But if you also take a look at some of the film, DeAndre Baker would get beat on a ball, the QB would miss the throw, and he'd be wagging his finger in the receiver's face like he actually did something. No, the QB missed the throw and you got beat. That's not something that you should be showing on tape. You should be fixing that. That's not a highlight. The QB just happened to miss the throw. But generally, in my opinion, I think the Giants have come to the consensus that they should cut DeAndre Baker. Uh, wasting a first-round pick was a pain in the ass a year ago on him. And also, Gettleman made the mistake of trading three picks to get the 30th overall pick, which selected Baker. That was a mistake. It's going to show up on his resume forever. Did he know that he had character issues? Yes. Did he know that he robbed somebody in the future? No. He didn't know that. He didn't know he was going to rob somebody in the future. But that's going to show on his resume forever. And the fact that the Giants fans come out and blame Gettleman is just bogus, really. Because you take a look. Yes, he had an on-field, excuse me, off-field character issues. Slept through player meetings. Yeah, Gettleman should have taken that in mind. But if you take a look, there's more emphasis put on this because it's Gettleman and he hasn't won a Super Bowl with the Giants but Jerry Reese you know Josh Brown he signed him Giants defended Josh Brown and then they cut him days later but the New York media and all media really emphasize this you know it's Gettleman's fault it's also the Giants fans too and I don't know why Giant fans think it's relevant to bring in OBJ into this argument I really don't think that it's relevant yes he had character issues both of them Beckham was smarter but Beckham was also a clown. Yes, he got traded away a year ago. We get it. We get it. Stop crying. I said this in another video. Stop crying. Leave him. He's also, you know, went against our quarterback on ESPN or wherever he did that interview with Josina Anderson and Lil Wayne. He went against our quarterback, went to another team where Baker, he supports Baker, not in, necessarily in the statement, but he Baker trashed Daniel Jones. Baker trashed Daniel Jones and, you know, everyone's, you know, criticizing him. But Baker's a big mouth and that team is just a cancer in the locker room. So if you think that keeping Baker around was bad, not saying Odell would be worse, but, you know, having Odell put his head into a fan and kick balls that are incomplete passes are just not something you should be putting on the field as a part of your team. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Odell and winning do not match. Yes, Odell gets the 1,000-yard seasons. We get that. But also to note, he is about himself. He's not about the team. Eli Manning, he was team, 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 not himself, himself, himself. OBJ was that guy, and that's why he's no longer on the team. Because he would have been a frustration to the rookies and all the players on the team and even the coaching staff. I may not like Pat Shermer, but definitely, you know, he was right when it came to disciplining him or trying to talk to him. But for cornerback purposes, I think Ballantyne or Beal should start at second corner. I think if you're cutting Baker, you're not going to have any money to sign anyone else. Stick with somebody on your roster. Ballantyne's an outside corner, as is Sam Beal. But no, James Betcher put him in the slot last season. But it's time to move past that, and those two will play outside corner at some point, hopefully. So that wraps it up for this episode of Bleeding Big Blue. We had Dan Duggan on, as I mentioned. 
Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our podcasts are available on YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and Google Play. Follow our social media pages at Bleeding Big Blue Podcast. Recommend this to Giants fans who don't know about our podcast. Great Giants discussions, great guests, and content here. Really fun. Watch out. I will be doing a live stream of my rebuilt Bengals team. I'll send a graphic out of what changes I made to the Bengals team from the Madden rosters. You'll see that. Thank you guys for supporting us, and come back for more podcast episodes.